If you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're continuing working through the Sermon on the Mount together. I think this is our 14th week in Matthew chapter 5, so we're taking it slow. But, hopefully we find some deep and profound lasting impact here um, in this sermon that Jesus preached to his disciples on the Mount. So this morning we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, in particular um, how believers, how followers of Jesus are supposed to treat their words. What is it that Jesus says about words? And we've been discussing some pretty potent societal issues leading up to this point this morning. Jesus makes six statements here, beginning in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5. And what he's displaying for his followers is what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. What does it look like to follow Jesus and to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? What do citizens of the kingdom of heaven concern themselves with? What do they do? How do they act? How are they different from the world? And so Jesus begins to unpack that for us, beginning in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5, when he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus' followers would have heard that, they would have said, How is it that our righteousness could exceed that of those who are the most righteous in our society? And Jesus is going to tell them. Jesus is going to give them a picture, paint a picture of what it looks like to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And the hallmark of this picture is that, is that the inside, inward transformation that has taken place is commensurate with, is in step with, is in line with the external righteousness that is seen in the scribes and Pharisees. We see that Jesus oftentimes chides the scribes and Pharisees because of their inward uh, lack of newness that they have. And then when we get to verse 48 in Matthew chapter 5, he sums it all up by saying this. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And what he's saying to his followers is this, you must be whole. You must be complete. What it means to be whole and means to be complete is to have an inside that matches the outside. And that is what Jesus is doing. Jesus' whole life in ministry is working towards this, is working towards an understanding that the inward transformation that has taken place is resulting in outward obedience to what Jesus is commanding his followers here. This is a righteousness that is greater than the, the scribes and Pharisees. So this morning, the last three weeks, we've looked at three different ideas, anger, lust. Last week, we looked at marriage, divorce, and remarriage, thought through that text, which was pretty difficult. This morning, we come to one that seems a little bit lesser, but is equally as important, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But let's read our text together this morning. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Jesus says this, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. In February of of 1995, episode 15 of the sixth season of Seinfeld aired on television. 
I don't know if you're a Seinfeld fan. Seinfeld is probably the greatest sitcom of all time. I'm going to objectively say that this morning. Seinfeld is the greatest sitcom of all time. Um, my college roommates and I binge-watched Seinfeld like 10 years ago, before, really 10 years after Seinfeld even aired, um, and uh, before all of these streaming services. So every six episodes or so, we'd have to like get out and change the DVD. Do you remember when you had to do that? It was crazy. Those were dark times. Good thing we've moved on from that. But this particular episode of the show, Jerry stands accused of enjoying watching a television show um, that no, no self-respecting adult male should be watching. <laughs> and his girlfriend is the accuser, and she suggests that he take a lie detector test, which is just that show in a nutshell, right? Why, whose girlfriend would make her, him, her, her boyfriend uh, take a lie detector test over something so trivial as enjoying a particular television show? But he agrees to do it, and this advances the lie. G Jerry advances the lie that he doesn't like his TV show, even though he does like the TV show. And Elaine, Jerry's friend, tells Jerry that he should, he should consult George, George Costanza. George Costanza, if you've watched the show, is a habitual liar. So Elaine says that George is among the most deceitful, duplicitous, deceptive minds of our time. So Jerry says, decides, I guess, that's a good idea. And he asks George for his help, and George scoffs at Jerry, telling him, it's like saying to Pavarotti, teach me to sing like you. <laughs> and Jerry, wondering where to go from that point, stands up and walks towards the door in the diner, and George calls out to him and says something incredibly impactful. And even though it was a punchline in 1995, it's become something very true for us in our society. George calls out to him as he's about to leave, and he says, Jerry, just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. It's not a lie. If we cue you the last track there, right? In 1995, that just seemed like a hilarious punchline. But in 2017, to the late modern mind, that's something that happens almost in everyday conversation. We live in a world that is unabashedly what it proclaims to be, added to the dictionary last year, this word post-truth. A world that is unabashedly post-truth. However, from the biblical perspective, and what we'll see this morning is that words have power and incredible impact. Words have power and an incredible impact. And what Jesus is communicating to his followers in these few verses this morning is that, is that kingdom citizens recognize that words have power and incredible impact. And that truth matters. And remember what Jesus is teaching to his disciples about kingdom citizens. In this morning's text, we see one way is that they treat the things that they say with a significant amount of weight. So because of the, the, the immense weight of the things that we've talked about in the previous weeks, in dealing with our anger, in dealing with our lustful intent, in dealing with marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and those things are, again, potent societal issues. We see those things treated as such here. We kind of put this one on a sliding scale, maybe because we don't understand what Jesus is even talking about, but maybe because um, our words, they're just words, right? But make no mistake that this command carries equal weight as the previous three. That's why Jesus includes it here. As Solomon in Proverbs 18.21 writes this, he writes this, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Our words are a matter of life and death. 
Jesus will say to the Pharisees later in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 37. They'll say this. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. But the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good, out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So Jesus is concerned with speech. He's concerned with words. He's concerned with words that flow out of an internal newness. Right? He says it right here in chapter 12. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Words carry weight. But you and I use them quickly and carelessly, and this is what Jesus wants to address here in this passage. Let me tell you why we use our words quickly and carelessly. I think this is part of our societal issue, is that we live in just sort of this throwaway culture. We live in a throwaway culture. Every couple of years, you buy a $700 iPhone, and then after it runs its course of its life, you put it in a drawer, or you recycle it. And so, well, party up there. <laughs> so we treat our words like they disappear when we speak them, because pretty much everything else in our society does. But that's not true. It's not true that our words disappear when we speak them. Not according to the Bible. Our words are a reflection of our heart. It's what's going on internally. And when we speak 15 to 20,000 words per day, you ever heard of that nonsense thing that women speak 20,000 words and men speak like 5,000? It's not true. Like, go look at the studies. We both speak a lot of words. I speak a lot of words. My wife tells me I do. It's okay. We speak 15 to 20,000 words per day. That's a lot of opportunity to display what's going on inside of our hearts. And this runs deeper than just sticks and stones. It runs deeper than just profanity or even making promises. This runs all the way down to our vocabulary and tone of voice, our body language when we're speaking to another. We throw away our words and we do the same with relationships, we do the same with our resources, we do the same with nearly everything that we have. Our speech is significant because it's the most consistent, it's the most regular way that our wholeness is displayed. That the perfection that Jesus is shooting for with his followers is hit. Is our righteousness greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Look at how you speak throughout the course of your day. What we say indicates our righteousness. Because it indicates if what's happening on the outside is matching what happens on the inside. So let's think about the text. Let's think about each of these weeks we've looked at what's been said, what Jesus' disciples have heard. And then we've looked at what Jesus says in response to that, in a sort of reimagining of these commands. And then we looked at kind of a so what, and Jesus gives us one here. So in verse 33, just look at verse 33 with me. Jesus says again, And you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So this is a mashup of several Old Testament texts and a summary of what the religious leaders in Jesus' day would have taught. 
regarding oaths. Oaths were a big deal in the ancient world. Because the, a, because the Old Testament had a lot to say about oaths or vows. And there was a lot of attention given to it. A lot of attention was given to oaths and vows and how you could take them and, and the ways in which you could speak them. And, and they were kind of all fell on this sliding scale. You'll notice the second half of verse 33. Jesus says, you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, that's a positive statement. And one that we would say that is important. But again, that's not necessarily the point of what Jesus is saying here. Rather, the following two verses, verses 34 and 35, where he says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, or, by the foot, or for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. You see that people were taking oaths by these different things. These in the ancient world were sort of viewed as loopholes. They were viewed as loopholes. Swear or take an oath by something lesser. Then when you need to back out, you can easily, because the oath was not to the Lord, but to something lesser. You can slide down your observance of your commitment. You say, oh boy, you need help moving? I'll be there from 4 to 7. You show up at 5.30, you leave at 6. But I didn't swear to the Lord, so it's all good. So despite texts like this, you know, we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount, we're talking about right relationship and how Jesus imagines right relationship between believers. What does it look like to have a right relationship with others? So despite texts like this in the Old Testament, this is Zechariah 8, 16 and 17. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. All of that is about right relationships with others. Malachi 3.5 Then I will draw near to you in judgment. I will be swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. That is about right relationship with others. The religious leadership ignored this horizontal relationship, person-to-person -person impact of truthfulness, and set it against the vertical impact of truthfulness, swearing things unto the Lord. But that's where they got it wrong. Because when we've been talking about this, it is similar, it is the same. To treat others the same way that you treat your relationship with God. Charles Quarles says this, he says, Some first century rabbis emphasized only the importance of speaking the truth to God and downplayed the importance of honesty in all communication. They thought they had a special obligation to keep promises made to God specifically, but could break promises made to others when it was convenient. Huh. Kingdom citizens. Kingdom citizens. Here's where we need to look different. Show up and follow through with commitments. This is righteousness that exceeds that of scribes and Pharisees. Action that is in step with our word. This is righteousness. And we say to ourselves frequently, we say, those promises that we make, they're not just throwaway words. They'll understand. This is no big deal. Surely people will extend latitude to you in circumstances that are outside of your control. But we're far too generous with ourselves in this case. But more about this later. We'll continue looking at this text. 
So what does Jesus say? Again, we read verses 34 through 36. What does Jesus say? He tells his followers not to take an oath at all. And then those examples that he gives, right? By heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem, by your head. And why, why these four? Why does Jesus give these four? They're frequently used substitutes to swearing unto the Lord. And so the oath taker could get out of the commitment again. So why does Jesus say this? I think because he wants his disciples to see and understand that the oaths that they take are binding no matter what they swear on. On heaven, that's where God lives. On earth, that's God's too. On a city, God set that city apart for himself. On your head, you have no power to control even what happens with your own hair. You have a bad hair day. And all these loopholes belong to God and are under God's control. Don't take an oath by any of these things then. Because when you say heaven, when you say earth, when you say Jerusalem, when you say your head, or if you say the Lord, they all carry equal weight. So what does Jesus then want from his disciples? Look at verse 37. Look at verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. So this is kind of the so what then. So what, Jesus? What do you want us to do? Simple honesty. I think what some Christians have tried to do throughout the decades, throughout the centuries, have tried to take this and make it mean that you should not swear in under any circumstances. Um, taking an oath is always wrong. Um, I have the great privilege of having jury duty this week. Um, if you serve on a jury, you know that there's an oath that you have to take. If you're married, you've made a vow to another person. And there's Christian traditions that have tried to say, don't take an oath in any situation. I think that that's wrong. I think that's missing the point of what Jesus is saying. I think the point of what Jesus is saying is summed up in verse 37. The reason people had to take oaths is because of dishonesty. Jesus is saying, let your honesty be simple, straightforward. Let your words be simple and straightforward. John Stott writes this. He writes, what Jesus emphasized in his teaching was that honest men do not need to resort to oaths. It was not that they should refuse to take an oath if required by some external authority to do so. Simple honesty means that you don't have to go to something bigger to make people believe you. Simple honesty means you don't have to go to something bigger to make people believe you. That is what kingdom citizens do. A simple yes or no will suffice. Simple honesty camps out and finds its home in our word, not in an accompanying oath. So, so what's, what's at play at the grander scale here? What's at play at the grander scale? You'll notice that even Jesus' instruction here comes from this result of this sort of misguided misinterpretation of Old Testament law, Old Testament words. The words have power, and the scribes and the Pharisees tend to elevate their own power and standing in society by twisting the words of God in the Old Testament to match their own agenda. But this is intensely practical. You're like, what? How? Okay, think, think about the way that we read the Bible. We're all prone to do this. We're all prone to do what we call proof text, our own personal agendas. What does that mean? It means we pluck scripture out, use it out of context, to advance our own personal agendas. And we make it mean what we want, want it to mean and to, to cause it to fit into our lives and the things that we're going. But, 
Forget about this. But don't forget about this. I was going to say something about literary criticism, but you don't care about that. So forget about the literary criticism part. Remember this. Here's an example. Let me just give you an example. Philippians 4.13, right? Here's a popular verse that we like to pluck out of Scripture. We like to slap it up on the wall in a locker room. Or we like to write it down on a, on a, on a post-it note and put it on our monitor. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? But if you actually read that verse in context, Paul isn't saying that you can literally do all things. It has nothing to do with basketball or being a great accountant. Here's you read it in context. He's saying that we uh, have the power to live a life of contentment and obedience to God while existing for others. That's the point of Philippians 4.13. That's what he's saying. You're like, boy, I want to be a great basketball player. I want to be a great accountant. I want to be the best accountant. amazing parent. So we have this personal agenda in place, right? And we quote Philippians 4.13 to ourselves regularly. But it kind of actually means the exact opposite. And if becoming the best accountant in the world or a great basketball player means stepping on others in your ambition or cheating on that accounting test, Philippians 4.13 certainly doesn't mean that you can do that. It means, again, quite the opposite. And this appoints us to the authority that the crowds would marvel at when we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28-29. When Matthew records what the crowd's reaction to everything that Jesus is saying, he writes this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as, as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus had the authority in his words to debunk the religious leadership and their bizarre regulations and these misinterpretations of God's intent in his words. And they didn't understand that their words that had opened the window to their heart. When they took an oath by heaven, they took an oath by earth, when they took an oath by Jerusalem, when they took an oath by their own head, those words gave a clear view into their own heart. As those who didn't value honesty, they didn't value honesty that came through inward transformation, but valued a life that kept their power intact and the people in awe of their righteousness. <laughs> and how Jesus addresses it in Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. And this is incredibly important for, for this whole text this morning. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, and do and so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a the finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor and feasts and, and the best seats in the, in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 
And you'll notice that the Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens. And they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. But several chapters earlier, Matthew 11, Jesus records, or Matthew records Jesus saying this. Come to me, all who labor are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus' burden is the exact opposite of the scribes and the Pharisees, because the scribes and the Pharisees provide external, external rules and regulations for the people. Jesus provides the newness that is required to adhere to the commands of God. The scribes and the Pharisees were concerned with external conformity and usually flowed from fear, usually flowed from anxiety, and it was a great burden on the people. Jesus was concerned with right living that flowed from internal newness. And Jesus could say that he had an easy yoke and a light burden because he was the one who would make that possible. And simple honesty, our text this morning, simple honesty that flows from inside, a heart that's been restored, keeping one's word, a yes or no that is not polluted with caveats, comes from wholeness. That is generated through new life in Christ. So in conclusion then, just a couple of thoughts this morning. In conclusion, a couple of thoughts. From what Jesus says here, there are no meaningless words. There's nothing that gets spoken throughout the course of our day that does not carry meaning. That is not a window into our heart. Your words always carry weight. They never do not carry weight. Flippant speech is warned against time and time again in Scripture. In the book of Proverbs, it does this over and over again. Here we go. The tongue is closely connected with the heart. Proverbs does this. Proverbs 10.20. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is little worth. Proverbs 12.19. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Proverbs 15.4. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Proverbs 21.6. The getting of treasure by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. Proverbs 26.28. A lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works through it. Friends, words often seem benign. The Bible tells us they're not. And here's why. Here's the big picture. You're created in God's image. We as people... Created in God's image. Words have very important role in the life of a kingdom citizen. God spoke everything that there is into existence with words. Jesus is the Word in flesh. God chooses to communicate who He is through words. Words have a very important uh, role in the life of the kingdom citizen. And as an image bearer of God who uses words, we are called to do so with deep, profound, effective impact. And while God has prepared specific 
Well, God has very specific intent for marriage, for sex, for marriage, divorce, remarriage, sex, human interaction, all of these things. He also has a very specific intent for our words that they reflect in. So what does that look like? What does that look like? It looks like simple, clear, concise, effective language all the time. Truthful. Now that's how the kingdom citizen speaks. There are implications for the life of the local church here also. Just as you and I are called to live openly together in community. Not to bottle up our anger, but to quickly reconcile with others. Not to use others and objectify them, look at them with lustful intent, but radically repent. Not to subscribe to a worldly, throwaway view of marriage, but to sacrificially enter into commitment where you are with someone, for someone, and unto someone in covenant love. We are also called to be open and honest with one another. Nothing, nothing... Because we speak 15 to 20,000 words a day, and that is a direct window into our heart, nothing arose biblical community quite as quickly as our words. If we speak lies, if we speak half-truths, or make unsubstantiated claims to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we will erode biblical community. So don't fall into this trap. We cannot fall into this trap by thinking that our words are benign, that they do not carry weight. And here's how to not do this, practically. Here's how to not do this. Listen. James, the brother of Jesus, who probably heard Jesus teach this on multiple occasions, he writes in James 1.19, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So everyone in the context of biblical communities is called to approach their words with humility. Approach others with humility. They're all called to choose their words carefully and consistently and ensure that their words flow out of internal newness. Then, then we're showing the world what the kingdom of heaven is like. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are displaying to the world what it means to be a citizen of that kingdom. Is our sinfulness going to get in the way? Yes. Just own it. It's going to get in the way. But we're all working to kill it, and we're working to love one another in our speech. The basis of Christian community is God's Word. The basis of Christian community is God's Word, and the Spirit-empowered words that we speak, the truth that is spoken by kingdom citizens, Reflect the heart of our relational God. God is weaving together. God is weaving together our stories. He is making us together as a people. He is bringing us together. We are proclaiming. We are communicating the grand narrative of God's restorative work here on earth in the brokenness and messiness by existing together. If we're the people of God, we cannot cannot speak truthfully and faithfully to one another, then we have no witness in the world. But our story 
is one that's completely opposite. It's of redemption, it's of restoration, of reclamation, of forgiveness, of grace, of mercy, and of love. And as citizens of the kingdom, new creatures, we must willingly commit ourselves to exist for others because of the redemption, restoration, reclamation, the forgiveness, the grace, the mercy, the love that we've experienced and has been shown to us in Christ Jesus. So this morning, if you're here, you've been kind of walking on the fringes of this body for a while, I think that the call is clear. I think it's time to move towards the center. We're going to be partnered to participate together in the gospel. And the reality is we can't do that if we're isolated from one another. We treat, we treat the church like an organized activity that happens once or twice a week. We're going to miss this. You can't follow Christ and pick and choose when you're ready to commit to others. That, that sort of brings us to our, our final concluding thought this morning. Our speech needs to be accompanied by faithful action. Our speech needs to be accompanied by faithful action. This is non-stop truth that comes to us in the New Testament. Almost every single one of the New Testament authors hits this. Time and time again, our speech needs to be accompanied by faithful action. Jonathan Pennington, he writes this, Ultimately, humans must be truthful and faithful to their commitments because God himself is faithful to his own. God is faithful to all his promises, always. Everything in the past, present, and the future that God has promised will come to pass. It all finds its yes in Christ. And again, we who find it's, we who find and find our grounding and the grounding for our own truthfulness and simple honesty in the person of Christ. So our faithfulness must reflect His. We must honor our commitments. No matter, we must not look for outs. No matter how we feel, no matter how crazy our kids are, no matter how little sleep we've got. We need to seek to be faithful in every situation. We must honor our simple yes and no. And we take comfort in the fact that when where we come up short, Jesus was truthful and faithful in every situation. He was truthful and faithful in every situation, even when it got killed. He was accused, he was beaten, he was mocked, he was scorned, he was crucified. He held fast, he remained faithful, he remained true to his word. Which I believe led directly to what the Apostle Paul wrote to his spiritual son, Timothy, 2 Timothy, verse, or chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. He says this to Timothy, the last book that Paul wrote. If you have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, or he cannot deny himself. Let's pray.